to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice at Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he reported on several criminal justice proposals lawmakers could take up in the 2024 legislative session, which starts February 5th. Keaton, what Oklahoma criminal justice issues have been most pressing in recent years? And uh, is the legislature going to take a look at correcting any of those? Yeah, so... You know, looking back over the past four or five years, of course, we had the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that uh, had a pretty big impact on uh, prisons and jails. Of course, people in close close quarters and sentences, trials getting delayed, all of that. Um, seems over the past year or two, a lot of that has uh, recovered. And we've seen uh, a lot of the attention going back to uh, the length of certain sentences, the treatment of uh, certain people incarcerated. Um, that's That's been a lot of our, where our coverage has been focused on. And we've seen uh, several bills proposed that would, uh, that look to address some things going on in our criminal justice system. Right. And which uh, reform proposals caught your attention? There was one bill by uh, Representative Melody Blancet that uh, I reported on a few years ago. Um, they've been trying to get a bill passed that would require um, jails and district attorneys to send in pretrial data. So essentially uh, information to the state on who's being charged with certain crimes, uh, how long they're staying in jail, what their bail amount is set at. Um, and the idea of that is that if they had that information coming in, they could pinpoint what uh issues are are most pressing what maybe you know is a certain crime getting a high bail for um a reason they don't think is very valid that sort of thing um so that that was one bill that that caught my attention i know there's been uh, a few proposals in previous years but uh, that's one that will be interesting to follow uh, i know florida has passed a similar bill and has um, that information available publicly um, so not the first state to to try it out. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. All right. Now, um, you know, we saw uh, a movement for quite a while to reduce some penalties for certain crimes and, and ease jail overcrowding, especially nonviolent crimes. Uh, what about bills this year to increase punishments? There are several bills that would increase punishments uh, for domestic violence related offenses. Um there's one bill by Senator Kristen Thompson that would uh, increase the maximum sentence for domestic violence by strangulation from three years to 10 years. Um, there's other bills that would add domestic violence to the Violent Crimes Registration Act, um, all, all kind of geared towards uh, cracking down on, on domestic violence um, that has generally over the past decade been on the rise. Uh, we saw a big increase in in 2020, of course, with, uh, you know, businesses and schools shut down, people being at home more often. And a lot of these bills are aimed at uh, at increasing penalties for domestic violence. 
Yeah, one of the things that uh, came up on that topic uh, in recent years was some concern that, uh, you know, strangulation was not on the list of violent crimes in Oklahoma. And there are some things on there that may seem a lot less violent than strangulation. It raised uh, a lot of eyebrows. So uh, the bill that that uh, Thompson proposed here, it increases the penalty for strangulation in a domestic violence situation. Does it yet add strangulation to the list of uh, violent crimes in the state? Uh, I don't, I don't believe so. Um, I would have to double check that. Um, there may have been, and I don't know if it was proposed or got stuck or, uh, what the status of it was. I believe there was a bill in in recent years to add it to the list of violent crimes, but off the top of my head, I'm not sure uh, where that ended up. Uh, now in October, you reported on state prisoners being confined to some pretty small shower stalls for several hours or even days at a time. Was there uh, any legislation filed in response to that incident? It got a lot of attention at the time. There was, yeah, there was a bill by uh, Representative Justin Humphrey, um, who chairs the House Criminal Justice and Corrections Committee and has um, kind of been on a crusade against the Department of Corrections over the past several months. Um, but that bill would allow um, any sitting uh, state elected official, lawmaker, um, to visit any prison um, at any time, basically, to um, talk with staff and, and inmates and sort of evaluate conditions. Uh, I know in my research, Pennsylvania was one state that had a similar law um, sort of during regular business hours, any elected state official can visit a prison and uh, evaluate what's going on there. Um, so it'll be be interesting to see if that gains any traction. And DOC's response to that was, uh, we don't need that law. You can already come visit anytime you want, wasn't it? That was their response. And uh, I guess Humphrey's idea of it was, well, I don't want the the red tape of scheduling a visit. I want to just drive up and be able to to go in whenever I can. Um, of course, the the response to that might be, you know, there are security uh, protocols and and things that that need to be considered going into a prison. Um, so I would I would expect maybe some back and forth on this bill coming up over the next next few months. All right, you also reported on a proposed uh, felony classification system that would make some changes. What's going on with that? There was uh, a felony class. This has been sort of an ongoing effort over the past several years. There was uh, a task force created to look at a possibility of creating this classification system. Most other states uh, have a similar structure where um, crimes are grouped based on severity and there's common sentencing ranges. And uh, the idea is that someone in Oklahoma County is going to be sentenced fairly similarly to someone in Tulsa County or McCurtain County, um, I guess, trying to, I guess, bring, uh, you know, averages in line across the state instead of there being, you know, sort of a really broad sentencing range for some crimes. Um, the bill proposed last year um, got stuck in a, in a Senate conference committee at the, the last few weeks of session. Um, ultimately didn't reach the governor's desk. Um, but there's one proposal by Representative Anthony Moore um, in, in that bill from last year is, is also eligible to be reconsidered again. So um, something I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on. Um, of course, there was some um, 
district attorneys and, and law enforcement folks have been pretty heavily involved in this. So it'll be interesting to see where they come out on um, on whatever's proposed or maybe what sticking point is on certain crimes. So I'll definitely be keeping keeping an eye on it. All right. Now, uh, as we see every year, more than 3000 bills were filed. Uh, only a tiny percentage of those will ultimately make it into the statutes. Uh, how will listeners know which bills actually have a chance to make it to the governor's desk? So the first deadline is February 29th. That's the deadline for bills to get out of uh, conference or the committee in their chamber of origin. Um, so that's that's coming up here in, in a little over a month. Um, so that will be kind of the first if a bill doesn't get past that date and is passed out of committee. Um, that's that's usually a good sign that it's it's dead for the dead for the year. And how can listeners keep track of all those bills? So if you go to the Oklahoma legislature's website, uh, oklegislature.gov slash advanced search form, um, you can type in the bill number and sign up for email updates on um, when action is taken on a bill. So that's that's helpful for us when we, you know, we have dozens of different bills with different numbers and it's kind of jumbled to be able to have um, an update on when something something's scheduled for a hearing or um, there's there's a vote set for it. Uh, that's that's super helpful for us. And of course, uh, folks who are listening can can take advantage of that as well. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's work on criminal justice and democracy on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. While you're there, make sure to sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Reporter Paul Monies has a recent story checking how expanded powers for the Oklahoma governor have fared since the legislature changed how some agency directors are selected. Paul, uh, how did these most recent changes come about? Yeah, so we took a look at these changes, and they're mostly actually over two governors, uh, former Governor Mary Fallon and the current Governor Kevin Stitt. Changes came in in 2018, and then uh, there was five or six changes in 2019 um, when in Stitt's first term. And so give us a little history. Why is executive power uh, so dispersed in our state? Yeah, so this goes back to Oklahoma's uh, statehood constitution, which was during the progressive era, which uh, was basically a power to the people movement. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, politics at that time was basically the people should decide everything, really. And so Oklahoma's constitution was set up where executive power was dispersed not only among the governor, but a lot of uh, directly um, elected state um, elected office holders. Um, so we've got the normal ones like the governor, attorney general are typically elected. We've got uh, labor commissioners elected in Oklahoma, insurance commissioners elected, uh, our three-member corporation commission, which regulates a lot of utilities and businesses is elected. Uh, and that kind of had that whole uh, part of state government, which also went into um, a lot of agencies had their independent boards uh, that had selected their own directors. And uh, say insurance commissioners, another one on that list. And, and what you're saying is a lot of states, those are appointed positions. Those aren't jobs that uh, everybody goes to the poll to elect. That's right. Yeah. Depending on the state and how this constitution is set up, a lot of those um, executive officers are appointed by the governor. That's not the case in Oklahoma. The, the power is dispersed widely throughout the executive level of government. Now, um, some of those powers change depending on 
uh, media coverage and and maybe the occasional scandal, right? That's right. Yeah, um, we we probably remember from 2017 there was a uh, a lot of uh, coverage at the health department. Uh, it was missing some money. It couldn't find about 30 million dollars in its budget. That caused a ripple effect all the way down. Um, and so lawmakers said, well, hey, this this board that appoints this director at the health department needs to have that power taken away. So they basically um, had changed the law and had a direct appointment from the governor at that time in 2018. And then um, when Governor Kevin Stitt took uh, office, um, the legislature also changed it for five uh, other uh, agency heads that are now directly appointed by the governor instead of an independent oversight board. Uh, they did make that change in terms of basically the, the board now is composed of appointments from the governor and then split between the Speaker of the House and the pro tem. So that, that power is dispersed between the legislative and executive branch for that appointment on that board, but the governor has a majority. Uh, in return, the legislature got um, some powers to um, to vet these appointments. The Senate got confirmation for these agency heads as well. Now, uh, Governor Stead has tended to go outside of government uh, to select those agency heads, hasn't he? Is that, has that changed at all or is that still how it's going? Yeah, it's, it's mostly the same, although we saw in his first term, um, he really didn't have a political base, having been a new uh, political um, candidate himself. He came from private business. Uh, started and formed Gateway Mortgage Company, which is now Gateway First Bank. Uh, and he campaigned in his first term basically saying, hey, look, the, the governor needs to have more accountability. Uh, and so they basically got the legislature in his first term to make that change in a lot of times. And so he went outside of government for a lot of these agency heads to particularly the oil and gas sector, to business leaders and other sectors outside of the agency expertise. Uh, that ruffled some feathers, caused some friction among existing employees, He's now kind of maybe reverting to form a little bit in the second term. Some of his later later picks have been more people with agency direct experience rather than from outside of government, but it's still a pretty big mix of people from the outside. Now, you talked to several uh, experts in government for the story. Uh, what did they predict about those changes to gubernatorial powers? Yeah, they said that, that you know, the long-term part of this is that these, these changes are probably here to stay. They say that the legislature as media coverage pops up in certain areas or scandals pop up in certain areas. The legislature may get frustrated with a gubernatorial uh, agency director and may change that in one or two instances. But for the most part, um, they see the need for the governor to have more accountability in these agency heads. Um, and there's not a whole lot of wholesale uh, differences in changing the law. Now, I, I say that and they have kind of come back on one particular board, uh, the Turnpike Authority, where there was a big issue with some of their expansion plans in the Norman area that caused a lot of uh, friction among some folks in that area. And so the legislature actually did change the law in the composition of that Turnpike Authority, although those are eight-year terms. And so it's going to be a while before you see some of that uh, into effect in, in practical terms. And uh, has the legislature uh, addressed... Uh, other boards uh, at this point, or is the Turnpike Authority the the only one they've waded into like that? The Turnpike's one that they've made some differences to so far, although there was a bill in the last session in 2023 to change the appointment power for the tourism department. Uh, that bill kind of stalled out halfway through the session, uh, didn't make it to one body. Uh, it's still alive for the 2024 session, and we'll kind of see how that, that fares in the upcoming session. Now, some bills have been filed for this upcoming legislative session uh, on this issue. What have you seen come through the pipeline there? 
Yeah, and in my review so far of some of the bills, uh, I've seen a couple that uh, would break up the Office of Management and Enterprise Services, which is a kind of sprawling agency that's in charge of everything from human resources to IT acquisition uh, and state finance um, kind of authority. Uh, that is a directly appointed position, the head of that by the governor. Uh, there's a couple of bills floating out there right now in an early forum that would kind of break up that agency and pull parts out and give a different kind of uh, overseer for that. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, you can read all of Paul's coverage of state government. You'll find it on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross uh, covers democracy and criminal justice at Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Democracy Watch newsletter, he examined several election and voting bills that lawmakers could consider in the upcoming legislative session that starts February 5th. Keaton, why is this session particularly important when it comes to election policy? Well, we're, we're in an election year, of course, and uh, typically uh, if a bill doesn't have an emergency clause or some other um, special notice on it, it will take effect November 1st of the year it's passed. But, um, you know, we could see some bills put forward that have an emergency clause and take effect before um, that that November election or uh, some of the primaries leading up to it, um, and and have an effect on on voter access and and those sorts of things or bills that end up reaching uh, joint resolutions that end up reaching the ballot. Uh, basically, the legislature putting a question before voters. Um, so all those things um, we'll we'll be watching for sure. All right. Well, what kind of restrictive proposals caught your attention? So there were there were a few restrictive proposals. And of course, at this stage in the process, there's um, there are a lot of bills that are proposed and get attention and don't necessarily stick uh, throughout the process. Um, but there was one bill by Senator Jack Stewart that would require every voter in the state to re-register in 2025. Um I got a lot of negative attention and, and folks concerned about that. Um, so those those sorts of bills we'll be watching just to see if they um, get any traction in the first few weeks. Um, a lot of times that's not the case, but it's it's you know typically good for us to to keep an eye on on everything here in the initial stages of it. All right, what about the other side of the fence? Did you spot any bills that would expand voting access? There were a few, yeah, nothing, nothing like super, uh, super crazy in that regard. But uh, there was uh, one bill right by Representative Alonzo Sandoval that would uh, expand early voting hours, um, and there was another bill by Senator Julia Kurt that would uh, increase the ballot initiative signature gathering period from ninety to one hundred eighty days. Um, there's been some attention on on that subject over the past few years about that window being pretty tight compared to other states. Um, so those were a few that caught my attention in the the access realm. Oh, in September, you reported that lawmakers were considering restrictions on ranked choice voting. That's an uh, idea that's uh, gained a lot of traction in some parts of the country. And, and here it's uh, been, been met with uh, a mix of reactions, I think it's fair to say. Uh, could you remind listeners what ranked choice voting is and uh, any legislation that popped up this year related to that? So ranked choice voting is a system where 
Uh, you rank, you don't vote, check one box for one candidate. You essentially are tasked with ranking candidates based on preference. So, you, you know, if there's four candidates, you'll rank them one through four. Um, and there's an elimination process if, if one candidate doesn't get a majority of votes to where um, the last candidate is knocked off and those votes are retallied and eventually one candidate uh, wins uh, with the majority of votes after those votes are retallied. Um, we've seen this uh, in Alaska adopted at the statewide level. Um, other places have done it in local municipal elections. Um, but there's been some pushback here, uh, concerns that it's overly complex, that it will take longer to uh, get voting results to come in. Um, be a, there would be a lot of effort required to educate the public on it. Um, so there's an interim study on that over the fall uh, that, that touched on some of those points. And there are two bills, one from Representative Eric Roberts in the House and one from Julie Daniels in the Senate that would ban ranked choice voting in Oklahoma at the, the state and the municipal level. Oh, uh, ranked choice voting, it sounds like, though, would eliminate the need for runoff elections, wouldn't it? That's true. And that's one of the arguments that that proponents of the system uh, point to is that, um, you know, you do one election and then you um, once you get the system in and get acclimated to it, that um you eliminate that need for uh, the August runoff that we have here in Oklahoma. Um, so that that is one argument, uh, one benefit that is brought up a lot. All right. Now, you also reported on uh, proposed changes to Oklahoma's ballot initiative process. What sort of bills were filed on that front? So there were several bills that would change sort of the criteria for uh, signature collection to get uh, a proposal uh, on the ballot. Um, the one that caught my attention was from uh, Representative Charles McCall, who's the House Speaker, uh, that would require uh, a certain percentage of signatures to be collected in every congressional district. Um, the criteria right now, based on the type of question it is, whether it's a referendum or a, a constitutional amendment, um, that's statewide, this would change it to where you have to get, you know, for a constitutional amendment, uh, 15% of voters uh, in every congressional district to sign the petition. Um, so that would that would increase uh, the effort required on, on the behalf of organizers. Um, so that's been proposed. It is it is a resolution. So if it passes the legislature, it would go to a statewide vote where voters could reject it or um, approve it. But that that is one bill put forward. And uh, the fact that the the speakers filed it means it could could have some legs. Oh, uh, ballot initiative process, uh, letting letting voters put their own ideas on the ballot if uh, they can't get the legislature to do it. Um, Oklahoma already has a fairly high bar uh, in uh, in order to get something on the ballot. It's pretty tough to do, isn't it? That's right. It. You have to uh, collect all of your signatures and the period is is 90 days, as I mentioned briefly before. A lot of states give six months or even a year to get that, get those signatures. And uh, the amount, uh, too, is is a pretty high bar, 15 um, percent for a constitutional amendment. Um, and there's there's been some conversation, you know, that as that was maybe more feasible when Oklahoma was a smaller state, but as we've seen, uh, you know, the population grow and just more people, the sheer amount of, 
of folks you have to get to sign the petition um, can can be pretty daunting unless you have, uh, you know, the sort of uh, money and resources to go out and, and, you know, have a really concerted effort in that regard. And uh, we should also probably mention, though, that Oklahoma is one of the states that even has a process for direct democracy, for voters to to put something on the ballot themselves. Not all states offer that, do they? That's correct. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I believe it's Oklahoma's maybe one of 20. Um, low, I think it's in the low 20s as far as states that uh, can can put a question directly on the ballot. So that is somewhat unique. Now, this isn't uh, the the first time that the lawmakers have tried to make it even harder, right, to, to get something on the ballot? That's right. We saw uh, a lot of these efforts ramp up after the Medicaid expansion vote in June of 2020 um, that, that passed by a pretty narrow margin and was led by uh, voters in Oklahoma City and Tulsa metro areas. Um, so we saw several bills filed, no, no major, um, major action taken there. Um, a lot of those bills were filed and ultimately abandoned towards the end of session. Um, but more recently, we've seen some, uh, some action in Ohio and other states where a statewide question on abortion rights is put on the ballot. Um, and that's that's sort of accelerated some some concerns um, from folks in the Republican Party about ballot initiatives. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens on those proposals this session. And what what prompted those those efforts? You mentioned, you know, an abortion question in uh, Ohio. But what makes uh, what makes them want to kind of crack down on voter led initiatives? There is some concern, uh, I believe, that there's out-of-state money or special interest groups that are driving um, sort of the effort to put these questions on the ballot. And um, as far as campaign finance stuff is concerned, you know, and generally it's fairly lax as far as money coming into a campaign for a state question compared to, um, you know, a a candidate's campaign. Um, So there's a lot of the concern there is uh, the, the idea or thought that, um, you know, some group based in Los Angeles or New York City or Washington, D.C. is going to pump a bunch of money into Oklahoma to get a question on the ballot and and drive the the advertising and stuff there. So that's that's sort of the thought process of, of a lot of these folks that are putting these questions on the ballot. Is there a uh, perception there among some people that, um, uh, you know, voters being able to put a question on the ballot is sort of a, a path of last resort for voters when elected officials won't run a bill that their uh, their only recourse is to put it on the ballot themselves. And uh, legislators that don't like the topics of those initiatives uh, would prefer to take that power out of voters' hands. There is, and you, you've seen that going back over the past several years with. Uh, criminal justice reform with state questions 780 and 781 and the recreational or excuse me, medical marijuana question on state question 788. Uh, Both of those were issues that the legislature kind of dragged their feet on. And eventually that, um, you know, folks who are concerned about those issues uh, organized and got a question on the ballot. And, um, you know, in a lot of folks' minds, it is a, a sort of check, check of balance on the legislature when they don't. Um, 
are stalling to act on something or, or aren't doing what, um, you know, a good chunk of voters want. Um, so that that is a, a perception of a lot of people that it is that check on the legislature. All right. So uh, what's the deadline we're looking at for all these bills to get heard? That would be February 29th is the deadline for bills to pass out of committee. Uh, if they're not passed out of committee at that point, uh, they're more than likely dead for the session. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, that story was in Keaton's most recent Democracy Watch newsletter. You can subscribe to that. It comes out every week. You'll find a form on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also read all of Keaton's investigative work on democracy and criminal justice. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.